So we're going to read again from Habakkuk chapter 2. <coughs> Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 5. <coughs> Wealth is treacherous and the arrogant are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave. And like death, they are never satisfied. In their greed, they have gathered up many nations and swallowed many peoples. But soon their captives will taunt them. They will mock them, saying, What sorrow awaits you, thieves? Now you will get what you deserve. You've become rich by extortion, but how much longer can this go on? Suddenly your debtors will take action. They will turn on you and take all you have while you stand trembling and helpless because you have plundered many nations. Now all the survivors will plunder you. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly? You believe your wealth will buy you security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. But by the murders you committed, you have shamed your names and forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you and the beams in the ceilings echo the complaint. What sorrow awaits you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption? Has not the Lord of Heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? That they work so hard, but all in vain. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. What sorrow awaits you who make your neighbours drunk? You force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us. To speechless stone images you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Uh, well, over the past couple of days, some of the things that have been uh, standing out to me as we've looked at God's word together have been this. First of all, the reminder uh, to let God's word disagree with us. Uh, secondly, uh, and uh, as God's word disagrees with us, it will challenge us in this way, but it will also help us in this way. Uh, we don't want, just want to survive through suffering and persecution, uh, but we want to thrive. We want to be holy and godly in our suffering and persecution. 
And the other thing that I want to suggest that we see, particularly as God's word disagrees with us, is that it tells us the truth about ourselves. One of the biggest things that you and I need is to hear the truth about what we are really like. Because I'm sure you will experience this as well. In our lives, we often hear statements and claims about who we are, what our character is like, where our strengths and weaknesses are from others and from ourselves. And often those assessments are not as accurate as they need to be. The tendency of friends to sugarcoat what they say about us, their assessment about us, but also of rivals to be harsh in their assessment. Or just to misunderstand and to misjudge because they don't see the whole context, the, 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 the whole picture of, of things that they misunderstand. That they see us through the uh, prism of their experience of, of others. That they see us through what they know about themselves, but don't actually realise that they're talking about themselves. And through their agendas uh, as well. I don't know about you, but I have experienced, I'm sure others have as well, where uh, I've been told things about what I'm like and what I'm perceived to be like in a, a particular context. And in fact, started to believe that and started to respond to that until actually away from those people with their very dogmatic, very definite assessment of who I am and how I come across, I, I realise that that just isn't me, wasn't me before I met them, uh, isn't me afterwards, and it isn't actually how uh, the vast majority of people relate to me. And waking up to the fact that you've been pushed and painted into a corner and typecast and seen and presented in a particular way back to yourself and that, that has affected you, uh, affected your confidence, affected your mental and emotional health as well, is, is quite a realisation, quite a, an awakening. Uh, by the way, that sense of awakening uh, reminds us of why the Afro-American community uh, particularly took that term woke, as they awoke to their corporate ethnic community identity. Uh, who they really were as individuals and people together made in the image of God, uh, but also how they'd been seen, represented, treated by the dominant white American culture. Furthermore, uh, it's how uh, we tend to um, see abuse and bullying at work. 
Uh, and I would look back and say some of the experiences that I've had that I just mentioned of being told who I am were examples of bullying and abuse. And you will have experienced that as well. Uh, in fact, we, we have a label for it in the context of bullying and abuse. It's called gaslighting, uh, where uh, abusers and bullies distract from their character and their agenda by putting a false attention on you. In fact, mirroring, projecting onto you the issues that they have with their own character. You will have experienced that, no doubt, if you are listening in and you've experienced domestic abuse or bullying in the workplace, sadly even uh, within the church. So what is the solution? Uh, well, we need to be aware of a further danger here. Uh, and the further danger is that I don't always tell myself the truth about who I am. And learning to hear who I am, who I really am, is important. And the only person that then can really tell me the truth that uh, to quote the Cliff Richard song, because uh, you can never quote too many Cliff Richard songs, can you? The one who knows me better than I know myself, that time after time has proved it to be true, that no one knows me like you, that we need to learn to see ourselves as God sees us. Uh, because, particularly if you've been through suffering and abuse and persecution, uh, you can see yourself as ugly, as unloved. You can tell lies about yourself to yourself in that kind of way. Uh, but also because of the danger towards pride. Uh, to see myself as um, just as the victim and therefore innocent. Or to see myself as the hero, uh, the good guy. to see myself as right and infallible and God's word challenges that and, and here in the rest of chapter two the emphasis is on the latter it's on that warning against pride uh, because God now challenges and speaks to the Babylonians this prophecy now is 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 for them because Habakkuk has been saying Lord, are you going to deal with the pride and the sin and the injustice in my land? And God says, yes, I will. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, but there's a problem with them. They are pride and proud and wealthy and arrogant and greedy and violent. And God now says, yeah, I'm not blind to that either. And their time will come. Uh, and what this does is, first of all, first of all, it does this. It judges and challenges the Babylonians. Uh, but also in speaking uh, to the Babylonians, it has something to say uh, to those in Judah. Now, in fact, one of the techniques you see in the prophecies, you see it in Amos and in Ezekiel and Isaiah, is that the prophet will bring <clears throat> a word of judgment. I think this is also going on in Nahum and in Jonah, where they will prophesy against 
the other nations and their evil. Uh, but actually, the audience is still Judah, still Israel, still God's people. So that they overhear uh, the conviction of guilt and sin against the nations. Uh, but God is also saying, and insofar as you have those same characteristics, those same sinful tendencies, you are rebuked as well. Uh, so if God rebukes the greedy, the selfish, the arrogant among the Babylonians, uh, then surely uh, those who have been idolatrous and unjust and greedy amongst the rulers of Judah uh, stand condemned as well. Uh, so notice uh, verse 5, uh, the danger, the problem in terms of knowing who we are. Habakkuk, first of all, says that wealth is treacherous, that you cannot trust wealth. Uh, very important because in a, a physical-based covenant where God's blessing was attached to life in the land it was tempting just as the prosperity gospel makes this make mistake to do today to assume that the experience of material prosperity was evidence of god's blessing and approval so wealth can lie it is possible to be wealthy but not to be just, not to be right with God. Uh, equally, I would say the, the twin danger today is more the other way for many of us to assume that because somebody is poor, that they are therefore humble. Wealth is treacherous. And the arrogant are never at rest. One of the reasons that it's treacherous is because uh, those who are so self-confident and proud and exalted and trusting in their own wealth. They can have never have enough of it. They can never rest because they are insecure, because their status is always under threat. Uh, but also because they are constantly active in evil. They've got there by their wicked deeds, not by blessing and grace. And so they're constantly at it. Uh, the imagery here that we're, uh, we, we see throughout scripture of mouths as wide as the grave and like death, never satisfied. Um, you know, there are uh, two certainties in life. Um, taxes and death. Death is always coming. Death is never satisfied. It will come for all of us. And so here the imagery is that they're, they're greed and that leading to the output of what they say, they claim the lies that they, they tell, they, they can never stop doing it. Uh, but also that they are not satisfied with destruction and what they say leading to the actions that they do, the boasts and the claims that they make lead to death. In their greed they've gathered up many nations and swallowed many people. So this is this empire that's constantly seeking to expand, to suck in and to destroy. But they are not secure. 
And God said, soon the tables will be turned. So look at verse 6 to 8 with me. Soon their captives will taunt them, verse 6. Suddenly your debtors will take action, verse 7. Now all the survivors will plunder you, verse 8. There is sorrow coming because they are thieves, because they are plunderers, because they are murderers. God's justice is coming. And what will happen is that God will turn back against you, the very people that oppressed you. What does that mean for you and I living today in a world where we see injustice and oppression and evil? Well, well, sometimes we see that those oppressed rise up. But not always. Sometimes you do see justice and vindication in this life. I had the privilege of supporting uh, somebody who was suffering from workplace bullying and abuse and false accusation. And we actually stopped to pray and to say, what is God actually actively doing in this situation? What does it mean to be godly and holy in this? Uh, but we also realised as we looked at the situation that there must be something else going on under the, the surface. And it seemed that there were bullies and cheats and liars that were getting away with things time, time and time again. Uh, well, uh, my friends stood their ground. They were vindicated. And before long, actually, all of the misdemeanours of their oppressors caught up with them. Not only were the innocent and the oppressed vindicated, uh, but the oppressors were found out and all of their cheating and scheming and uh, dodgy acts caught up with them. But that doesn't always happen. And yet, the Bible is clear that your wickedness, your sin, your pride, your bullying, your abuse will catch up with you. A judgment day is coming. In that sense, as the righteous victims are vindicated, their witness, their testimony of what the oppressor did will mean that the oppression is turned back. So the, the oppressor will receive judgment. The words, the hands of those that they oppressed, there will be justice. And that is one of the aspects of hope that we have to keep thriving, to keep not just surviving, but being holy in our circumstances, knowing that we don't have to rush to get vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and the Lord will have it. And in that sense, our vindication, our justice comes within the context 
of him getting his because the sin is against him. Uh, notice verse 6 that even if and as Habakkuk asks how long O Lord uh, God challenges the Babylonians how much longer can this go on do you really think you can get away with it uh, the, the sense there I remember as I said that the the wealthy and prosperous and unjust uh, Jews of Judah are meant to hear this as well <clears throat> The sense there is, you can't go on with it. Sort it out. Get right. Uh, Jesus says, um, you know, get things sorted out before you reach the court. Uh, but in terms of the bigger courtroom of God's justice, get things sorted out now. Turn from your sin and your wickedness now. Don't wait for judgment day. And this is important through the lens of the gospel because sin will be judged. And it will be judged on one of two days, either directly against you on Judgment Day, or it has already been judged on Good Friday. And Christ bore the penalty in our place. So where do you want your sin to be judged? Because it will be judged. Judgment is coming. Uh, verse 9. What sorrow awaits you who build big houses? This sense of woe. Remember, uh, Jesus echoes this. He uh, declares woe to those that are hypocrites and liars and cheats and self-righteous. And a similar language here. Uh, woe, sorrow, judgment. It's coming to those who are satisfied and content and trust in their money and their wealth. The, the greedy, those of you who build big houses. Who think that they have got security in their wealth. That putting your family's nest beyond the reach of, of danger. So many sort of images there around the idea of a nest. You know, we talk about having nest eggs, don't we? Um... Uh, but also the sense of the family nest, you know, it's not just the house, the nest. Uh, perhaps the thinking we've had fish caught in nets before. There's also the imagery of birds and uh, uh, that might remind us of how Jesus told us uh, not to worry about tomorrow. So not to be worrying about wealth and prosperity and nest eggs and those kinds of things. God is able to look after the birds so that the birds, the birds don't have to worry. He can look after you too. Also, I think of the way, it's just a personal thought here, that nests are also used to describe uh, the, the, the house in the accommodation of rodents, of rats building their nest. And that seems to be appropriate in the description of the violent and the greedy. You've put your confidence in these things but the very things that you put confidence in will condemn you the very stones in the walls cry out against you and the beams in the ceilings echo to the the complaint you think that you've built your security in your grand mansion but actually that place is going to be the one that will be your downfall and will 
judge you. Again to the Babylonians, you build your big cities, you build Babylon. And how do you do it? You do it with the wealth that you've gained through your corruption, through your murder, through your violence. The, the city of Babylon, uh, just as later the, the city of Rome too, is built on uh, the uh, uh, income brought in from the empire and built with the slaves that were captured in war. You built this dishonestly. You've grown rich on the back of, of, of others. Uh, you think that you've attained this yourself, but actually you haven't. Has not the Lord of Heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? And here's the thing, in, in chapter 1 we saw uh, the, the arrogance of these people that you know, we can sweep everything before us. We'll bring our armies against the strong cities of Judah. Uh, we will bulldoze down the walls. We will flatten the cities. And God says, yes, you have the strength to do that. But if your strength is your God, just know this. My army is coming against you. I am going to defeat you. Pardon as well for us to remember that if the Lord of hosts can call upon his massed forces to destroy and defeat the enemy, that first of all, he has done that at Calvary, Colossians. He disarmed the powers and principalities that reigned against us. And that in terms of the battle today, we are told that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities. So in terms of the ongoing sense of spiritual warfare, that God's armies are uh, ready to fight with us against sin, putting to death the sinful nature, uh, defeating the works of the enemy. And what that means is that all of this wealth and grandeur is temporary. The wealth of the nations will turn to ashes. Uh, they work so hard but all in vain, echoes of Ecclesiastes here. All is fragile, fleeting, breath. You toil and labour, but it goes so quickly. All of your stuff will go. But instead, when your glory is diminished and gone, uh, verse 14, the world will be filled with the glory of God, uh, just as the seas and the oceans fill the planet now. That God's glory, God's light will flood in. And that's what we see when Christ came, that um, the light of the world stepped into the darkness and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God's presence with his people. Verse 15, again, what sorrow awaits you? You mocking your torment, forcing drunkenness so that you can mock and abuse and, and gloat. But soon it will be turned to your disgrace. Uh, again, just spot fair. Good to see the, these little details that point forward. 
I can't read that verse. You force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness without thinking of the treatment of Christ on the cross as they bring wine vinegar to him to continue their mockery. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. You will be exposed and shamed because you will drink from the cup of the law's judgment. You will experience shame. And again, here is the pattern through scripture that those of us who are hungry and thirsty and naked, that know our guilt and our shame, come to Christ, uh, the one that God's enemies stripped and abused and shamed and treated as guilty, even though he was innocent and glorious and majestic. And we receive clothing and forgiveness from him. But those who refuse Christ that remain defiant will experience guilt and shame on the last day. Their deeds will be exposed into the light. Further comparisons, you cut down the forests, you will be cut off, verse 17. In your sort of brutal murder, you swept everything before you, not just killing people, but even destroying the wildlife around you. But you are going to be so defeated, so fragile, so utterly annihilated, so defenceless, that you will live in fear of the terror of these animals. I think both literally that with their cities destroyed, they will be at danger. Uh, but also that same sense of being like a wild animal at primary. Rarely this is a metaphor. The hunter becomes the hunted. Death is the judgment for sin, and that is particularly appropriate for murderers and violent people. Uh, notice, by the way, that they've killed in war. They would argue that it's not murder. Uh, but God looks on the heart motives. And even if they are being used as God's instrument, their own purpose was to destroy and to harm uh, so that they have the heart and therefore the deeds of murderers. Verse 14, verse 18 to 20. What is good is an idol carved by man. Uh, so if in their greed and their selfishness, their success has lied to them, and in their arrogance they have lied to themselves and God's word tells them the truth, uh, now also they're warned that their idols lie to them. In fact, their idols um, are speechless, wooden, helpless, unable to save, unable to speak. Something you've created yourself. So if you've created the physical idol in terms of its uh, body, its entity, if you have to move it around, uh, then also by implication, you speak for it. How do I know that God is real and not imaginary? 
because God speaks to me and disagrees with me, how do I know that idols are not true? Well, because idols tend to agree with me. Because idols just represent my own projections, my own thoughts, my own desires and wishes. You trust in your idols. These have been named their strength, their power, their armies, their actual gods, gods of war. But their gods, their idols will be proved helpless as God reigns victorious. They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. God is in his dwelling place where we expect to meet him. I know it's the point of the temple means that that is God's presence with us. Uh, so we may lie to ourselves, we may hear the lies of others, we may hear the lies of our idols. Those lies need to fall silent because the truth speaking God is here to tell us who we are. Uh, notice this, that in terms of God is in his temple represented in the Old Testament by the physical temple that Solomon built that had been will be destroyed by the Babylonians, but a new temple will be rebuilt. But in fact, the prophetic focus in the New Testament is not on that physical building, the second temple extended by Herod, that will be destroyed in AD 70. Uh, the focus is on, first of all, on Christ. That God pitched his tent amongst us, uh, that tent, the human body Jesus fully God fully man as so Jesus in the Gospels clearly presents himself as the place where man is reconciled to God he is the sacrifice and he is the place where the sacrifice is offered so that Jesus will say destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild raise it up again not speaking of Herod's temple, but speaking of his own death and resurrection. But then also the church, both corporately and individually as believers, is now the temple of the living God, that God is present with us and in us through the Holy Spirit. God, the Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. It means that you and I are made holy. Uh, how do we learn to be holy, not just to survive, but to thrive, but to be holy uh, through our suffering and persecution? Well, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And God is speaking. And I want you to notice this. That if God speaks truth and judgment to his enemies, who lie to themselves in their arrogance and pride and greed, then also hearing those words of judgment brings God's truth to you and me. That truth that says, yes, you and I are sinners, that we have rebelled against God. But also the truth that says that we are reconciled 
to him, that we are counted as those who have faith in the Lord, the righteous, the righteousness credited through faith, who live. Have a look at 2 verse 4. That means that then God's people are now included with the survivors of those who will be vindicated, who will see justice on that day. So what is the truth about you and me? Well, God's word takes away our arrogance and pride, our confidence in ourselves. It tells us that we were sinners, that we are finite and fallen, needing God's forgiveness, needing grace. We cannot save ourselves. But it also tells us that we are redeemed, reconciled, loved by God made and remade in his image a part of his church the beautiful bride of christ that is how god wants you to see yourself that is the truth about you if you've put your trust in jesus and that gives us the humility to know i'm completely dependent on grace but also the confidence and the hope to face the day ahead, knowing that whatever people might say about me, or whatever man might say about me, it is what God says that matters. And what the Lord, what you say, I am, that counts. Amen.